Hi, I'm Jimmy Blair, and welcome to episode two of Inside Imago. We're recording on the unceded First Nation and Indigenous lands of Dojoge. As uninvited guests of the Ganyagahaga, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. Imago Theatre is privileged and grateful to live and work on these lands. And Imago is committed to connecting and working with First Nation and Indigenous artists and arts workers to make space for their story in order to create a greater understanding of what living here now really means. Today, I'm speaking with Yvette Nolan, playwright, director, and dramaturg. Her works include The Unplugging, The Dance Opera Bearing, The Libretto Shanadidit, the short play for film Catharsis, and the audio plays Lash Pala Patat, and You Can Get There From Here. From 2003 to 2011, she was the artistic director of Native Earth Performing Arts. Her book Medicine Shows about Indigenous performance in Canada was published by Playwrights Canada Press in 2015. She's currently the company dramaturg for some theatre in Saskatoon. Yvette will be here in Montreal to direct The Flood by Leah Simone Bowen with Imago Theatre and Mizu Shobai by Julie Tomiko Manning with Tableau Dote Theatre. She will also be working with Geordie Theatre on a play called To the Power of Jordan. I've had the pleasure to call Yvette dramaturg on two of my plays, Wardo and Feather Gardens, and we will be working on the third, Power of Jordan, coming soon. Hi, Yvette. Hi, Jimmy. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm doing well. This is cool that we get to do this um, in, in this way again. <laughs> I, I know, although I am getting a little bit tired of like the electronic relationship, but you know, at some point we'll be in the same room. I hope so. Um, so this is, uh, this is the Yvette is coming to town podcast. Yvette is coming to Montreal <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, it's good. Yeah, you have a bunch of stuff that that's Montreal related and and anchored in the in the city. I actually wanted to ask you, what's your relationship with this city? When's the first time you when's the first time you worked here? I don't even I don't recall when I actually worked there. I um I remember going for a Playwrights Union of Canada AGM the first time to the city and being, you know, overwhelmed by the city because Montreal is such a fantastic place. And then I've done some work with Playwrights Workshop Montreal over the years, workshops and things dropping in for that. And I'm working with Tim Brady on an uh, an opera, an electronic, an opera about AI in Montreal. So I've been there workshopping that. It feels like I've had an ongoing relationship with Montreal. Philip and I drove from Whitehorse to Montreal to see uh, FTA, to see shows at FTA. And then drove back. So Excuse we would. Excuse me, you drove? <laughs> yeah, I know. It was like our holiday. We're going to FTA. So we'll, you know, spend seven days driving to Montreal and then um, see a couple of shows. It was hilarious because tickets would be, would cost us 200 bucks and the trip itself would cost us like $2,000. And people would be like, aren't tickets for FTA expensive? And I was like, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah compared to the trip and trek we just took right that's so cool well um i can speak from the entire city of montreal when i say that we're super stoked to have you um frequenting uh our, our town in the next i guess year i think the first 
thing is the flood, right? That brings you here? No, the first thing is Mizushobai. Julie Mizushobai. Tomiko, yeah, yeah, Julie Tomiko Manning's play, um, which goes in the fall. And I was there last summer doing a workshop with Tabla Dote, but also with the company of actors. Okay. In order to, you know get ready for a production this year. So that's, I'm there in September. So I'm there from like Labor Day till just after Thanksgiving. And then I'm back at the beginning of the new year with the with the flood at Imago. With Mizu Shobai, like I, I did some like quick research about this woman, but do you, can you just like, can you unpack it and break it down for us? Cause like what, what I find super fascinating about this project about the flood and about the project that we'll eventually work on together is that we're all talking about stories that are stemming from people, real people. Real life, real yeah. people. Yeah, it's true. Misa Shoba is about based on um, a Japanese woman who came from Japan to North America looking for her father, ended up staying, ended up uh, in BC, ended up in internment camps. But it's it's a bit Albertine and five times. Like the the play is five, uh, is is Kyoko at five different ages, but they're all on stage together. And so it's interesting. It's a real examination of how we evolve as human beings. And she, you know, there's tape of this, of Julie's source material, speaking in Japanese, telling this story that was then translated and transcribed. And then Julie, you know, took that story and blew it up and did the thing that artists do, which is, you know, turn the page into like theatrical on stage action. So yeah, that's a real story. Um, the flood is based on the on the women's prison underneath St. Lawrence Market in Toronto, where they kept women. And then when there was a flood, they never let the women out and they all died. And of course, you and I are working on To the Power of Jordan, which is about Jordan River Anderson. And so, but don't you think those are the stories? Like those are the things that matter right now that we are unearthing histories that have been buried sometimes literally you know whether internment camps or under the ground at St. Lawrence Market and looking at them in order to figure out what we can learn from them and how we move forward from here yeah I agree I, I think there's like this I don't know if I don't know if you see it but I feel like there's this weird trend these days yeah, so as a society, there's this focus on the advancement of technology. There's this great Marshall McLuhan quote that I that I love to go back to is that humans are the sex organs of the machine world. And so we're, there's this there's this constant advancement of technology. And so there's this idea behind like there's this idea that we are wherever we are in time, we are by far the mo most advanced we've ever been. And there's an erasure of history, I think, that comes with that. And so when I think about unearthing stories, I really, I, I, I think about how wrong that present day thinking is and how there's way more value, I think, in, in going back and learning from what has happened because what has happened owns so much more of a piece of history than what we're talking about in terms of technology and the advancement of, of humankind. Well, and we know that the technology is, I mean, I was watching the news last night and, and you know, being terrified by 
the guy from Google who is the grandfather of AI who has quit because he's worried that the technology is now smarter than us, in which case the thing we've always struggled with especially us as Indigenous artists, especially me as a, as a woman, is like, who gets to tell the story? So what stories are privileged? And if we give up that power to technology, to the artificial intelligence, to the algorithm, then there's, you know, there's an argument that everything will be available. But I think there's also an argument that, you know, everything is manipulatable. And so we'd end up we end up being told whatever narrative is going to a be commercialized, be in the be in the hands of people like Trump. Speaking of like those two articles on the news last night, <laughs> Trump and his town hall, and you know AI take, being smarter than us. I'm like, oh, this is this is a really bad combination. It's super scary. It's really scary. So I think you're right. These are the stories. Um, these are, the, these are the stories that will hold, I think, enough power or more power for us to be able to, to find some light in there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And we come from, both of us come from cultures that were not written down. We come from oral yeah. oral traditions where our stories are kept inside our stories, like our teachings and our laws and our taboos are all inside our stories that our grandparents teach us. And that's how we hang on to information because, you know, when the power goes out and we lose the interweb and everything that we've stored in there, we have to know things inside our hearts and our heads. Oh, I think about that all the time. I think about all like what's, what's going to be left of us. What will be left of us when, you know, all of this deteriorates in, you know, in the next couple of hundred years or whenever it is that, we're no, we're no longer around. I mean, Ironically, yeah. it will be Shakespeare because he's right. written down, right? And and the, the rest of us who didn't bother writing anything down in this century will disappear. Yeah. Oh man, that's yeah. That spends <laughs> way too much time in my brain. Like that's so much real estate in there. I so in in just reading up on the flood, like I was surprised, and I think many people listening to this, and many people who who will come see the show who haven't read the play surprised to hear that there is an actual prison under the St. Lawrence market. It's the first prison of Toronto. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. And so the flood, you know, looks at who gets imprisoned, right? And it's, and the women who are in prison under, like literally underneath the floorboards of the St. Lawrence market are not necessarily criminals, but have been criminalized for one reason or another, because they're indigenous, because they're black, because they, they've been selling their body to eat because like, because their family didn't want to take care of them anymore because they're, they've been disabled in some way and, and how easy it is to disappear the people who we, the society think thinks is undesirable unwanted the unwanted unwanted yeah and we just bury them um that hasn't stopped right look at our prisons now and who's in prison yeah yeah i mean obviously disproportionate number of um black and indigenous people in our prisons today the play kind of gathers inspiration from multiple people character stories throughout history and places them in this this underground under market prison 
Yeah, uh, underground where the women have to, as we do, form some kind of society, some kind of, because we, we're social creatures. We can't help but be in relationship to each other. It's a, and it sounds so bleak, and and yet there's still hope in it. There is still joy in it. Leah's done, Leah uh, Simone Bowen, the playwright, has done some fantastic heightened stuff with it. There's a, a one of the things when we were doing auditions with, actors, one of the things we did was read a scene that is like the guard becomes kind of a master of ceremonies and he's, and he's running the basement, you know, prison, like a, like a freak show and charging publics to come and look at the women and they have to perform whatever their criminal itness is. And it's horrible, but also fantastic, funny. I mean, circuses, right? Like it's the whole, the circuses is such a great framing device for this kind of another place where people who had no place to go ended up. Um, and so there's a, there's kind of an echo in there, but it's also, you know, they, they're singing, um, there's, there's dancing, there's kind of magic inside of it. Yeah. It's, I mean, I've been waiting to direct this play. I worked on it dramaturgically, um, years ago and, always wanted to direct it. So it's one of those plays that I take around and drop at artistic director's feet and go, how about this one? How about this one? <laughs> and when Krista took over Imago, she was here working in Saskatoon on Shakespeare. And she said, so what should I be reading? Are there, are there any plays I should be reading? And I said, how about this one? And I gave it to her. And then she called me and said, yeah, like this one, do you want to direct it? I'm like, yes, finally, <laughs> someone is asking me to direct the play that I want to direct. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, there's something, there's something really interesting about, uh, the balance between how heavy it can get as a play and then the, the inspirational moments and the moments where you do find light in things. And, and that just, it, it, when reading through it, I, I started to wonder what, as a playwright, as a dramaturg, as a as a director, what you hope people today will hold on to and grasp onto, um, like what who are the folks that you feel like would be impacted most by this, and and what are they hanging on to? I think everyone feels othered in some way right now. Everyone feels marginalized or oppressed or silenced in some way right now. And, and part of that is like where we are in a society, as a society, where we are in identity politics, how polarized we are politically, that everyone is feeling othered in some way. And so when we, when we do stories like this, I think people get to be empathetic to other people. And then we can start to see a way forward altogether. Mm. We can start to see, we can start to see that we are all human and we are all dependent on each other. We're all connected to each other and that everything is connected. And so for an audience member to come out of something like the flood and go, I didn't know that. And maybe that makes them curious enough to go and look up things on the Google machine while we still have the internet and that leads them down some rabbit hole. And then they start looking at all kinds of other things. And then maybe, I mean, maybe it moves them to action or not. Maybe it just moves them to empathy 
which is good in this world. But I think any chance we get to, like I say, unearth those stories to show people the things that have been disappeared for so long, then we start to get a sense of who we are as, as you know, as a country, who we are as a bunch of people living together on this land. And, and that I think is, is a way forward. Yeah. That's, that's the fire that keeps me going anyway, is that hope that that's what happens in that room on that specific night. And it will continue to happen. I'd like to just talk a little bit more about Mizushobai, if we can, like the flood where I was unaware of this prison underneath the St. Lawrence market, I was also less aware, I would say, or maybe a little bit less surprised, but still it was, it was new to me, knowledge to me, uh, this idea of Japanese picture brides and that reality. And then the really fascinating trajectory that this woman took in her life to be able to not, not take advantage of what, what she what she had in front of her, but she made a new life for herself in a completely unexpected way, I think. Yeah, and and just resilience, right? Mm. Uh, so again, for me, another story, like I'm, you know, the play is a play about a Japanese woman. The playwright is Japanese-Canadian. All the actors are Japanese. They're, we're, we're, you know, we're working hard. Tabla Dode is working hard to bring in as many Japanese Canadian artists, but also Asian artists like just, and I'm an indigenous director directing this, which is so like, what is my empathy with this? But it's about, it's about making a life for yourself and being resilient in spite of everything that happens to you. And so that journey starts to parallel the indigenous journey, you know, being hated in a land, Mm. um, being people wanting to people treating you for the way you look as opposed, or, you know, where you come from, as opposed to who you actually are. So thinking about the internment and, you know, survival and just like, um, I, you can't get rid of me. Like (laughs) you can't get rid of me as an indigenous person, we can't get rid of, I'm making air quotes, of immigration. The fact that this country used people to use people from other countries to, I'm making air quotes again, build this nation and yet didn't give them all of the rights and privileges of everybody else. And all of that, in fact, took it away from them, right? In, in internment, like in that period of time, taking away the things that people had rightfully built for themselves. And I think this idea of Canada, who we are, we has to be challenged, not just in the way we treat the people who were here first, but in the way that we treat the people who came after. Um, and, and if we're going to actually think about who we want to be living here together, then these are the kinds of stories that we need to tell. And she had, what a fantastic story. Like, it's also such a the hopeful thing about it is she would meet an obstacle and she would just go, okay, I'm going to do this over, under, around. And as you say, reinvent herself, right? Reinvent herself with what she had and keep moving forward to become fully self-actualized as a human being. Yeah, I think that's, as you're you're speaking, I think, I just think about what that means in Quebec today, out of all places in the country, is is like what it means to reinvent yourself in a place that is forcing you to do that. 
you know, with, with new bills that are being passed. And, and I, I think there's like, there's a lot of similarities uh, to, to us or to the government, at least being, being very welcoming. I'll use your air quotes, being very welcoming to immigrants or um, refugees seekers and understanding the um, economic impact that they have on our society. But then in Quebec, placing such limiting boundaries around how they are to live and how they are to set the, the, the tracks for their new life. I mean, there, you could draw parallels all day with that. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about abundance, you know, like this land is still a land very much of abundance. And there is enough for everyone here. But who gets to say who has access to the abundance that is around us? Um, That's a question. And, you know, we always talk about you. People say it about us as Indigenous people, but they say it about immigrants and refugees and newcomers about just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's kind of simplistic because it's not like we all have the same access to the bootstraps. Or boots altogether. Or even boots. (laughs) (laughs) So Mizu Shobai is in uh, October. The flood is in February. Correct. Um, and um, the flood is taking place at the Centaur. Correct. Then in the fall of 2024, Jordi and uh, Jordi and Yvette will be joining forces to um, to bring a story about Jordan River Anderson to the power of Jordan. You know, what's interesting is that I think a lot of people who live close to in direct proximity with an indigenous community might have heard about Jordan River Anderson, probably heard about Jordan's principal, maybe if anything. But um, a lot of people that I talk to um, and, and tell this idea to have have never heard of Jordan. It's which is amazing, right? It's yeah. also how I think this is. You know, we talked earlier about. Technology. I think this is one of the effects, the side effects, the collateral damage of technology is that we we don't remember things. We don't, you know, the news cycle turns over so quickly that things are lost. Like it was only just recently that that the government came down with a decision on, you know, support for indigenous children in care, which is which goes back to to Jordan and Jordan's principle. But if people don't know that, it's, you know, how do we know where we're going if we don't know where we've come? And Jordan, the way Jordan was treated when he was in care in his short, short life, and then the champions, his family, Cindy Blackstock, who made sure that that was not going to happen again, that indigenous children would get the kind of support and care that they need, um, which has been years in the making, and I and that people don't even know that now can't forget is another reason for us to make this story, right? To to as we talked about you and I when we started the project that we think that Jordan is a superhero because even in his short life he made change, 
not just for himself, not just for his family, but for the whole country and for all Indigenous children that come after. It's not perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination. But when this decision came down, I saw Cindy Blackstock smile for the first time on the news. And I was like, wow, we've totally won if Cindy is smiling. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's... This is why we do art, right? This is why it's because these things can exist in a way when people have forgotten the news cycle. Yeah, because the news cycle is is by design shifting and changing, you know, day over day. At most, maybe, you know, we get a couple of weeks of something, but then there's a new thing that, you know, we we're we're exposed to and the media jumps on. So I'd say I'd argue that the system is designed for us to have, uh, you know, short-term memory loss. Um, you know, and this and that that's a fight. It's a fight. It wasn't, you know, it didn't just last like, years and years. It was a struggle to 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 fight the government and to and to force them to put this into place. I'm happy that we're we're going to get to do it. Um, and then people I, are going to learn about it. I am too, that, that people get to learn about it. And again, it's another story that's tough, but joyful, right? Like it's tough. And, it, and I think it, it, it's a way of honoring that short life and that strong spirit that can go forward for everybody. You talk, you're talking about AI, like your AI, I need to know more about your AI opera because I am obsessed with AI. Like I'm, I, um, I've been starting to read, 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 read up about it. Um, like early to late nineties kind of theory around AI. And then I'm, I'm, my plan is to, is to catch up with, um, with the development up until this point but like something like agi is like that to me is is very very frightening i know that people talk about the potential and what what yeah but i i don't have enough faith in um in humanity to think that we are going to come out of this uh yeah at all maybe uh so i you know i don't know if we do this here or somewhere else but i need we need to talk about it because (laughs) i want to write a play i want to i think i want to write a play about it i want to write a play about the intersection between i don't know if you're already doing this but if you are then i just i'll let me be a part of it please the intersection between ai and indigenous right um indigenous it's storytelling culture um like like the idea of like first and and what i'm what might be last i don't know like yeah how yeah. that intertwined is fascinating to me yeah i don't believe i mean tim brady who is the composer and i i'm writing libretto and we've had a workshop we've done 10 minutes of like a, a workshop presentation so we can move forward with it but in the last six months or so, my piece is a kind of post-apocalyptic and the AI, it's a little bit shades of Blade Runner, the AI and the, and the humans, like a f- decades ago, the humans banished the AI because they were, because they were afraid of them because they got too smart. And so they've been living apart, but in an apocalypse, like climate apocalypse, 
the humans come running to the AI and then they have to figure out if they can live together. And, uh, but Tim and I, you know, when we started the project, we were in one reality. And right now, every day we're sending each other AI stuff and about, and sort of going, where are we in our story? Is our story still the same? Because, because everything is changing so much. So it's a constant, it's a constant conversation we're having with, Hey, I essentially, because we get all of our information off, you know, the technology. It's very weird and very strange. In my infatuation with it, saw um, one kind of um, timeline prediction. Uh, and it went through, you know, decade by decade where we would be at with AI. And ultimately, I think by the year, it was the year uh, 23. 2100, uh, there would be AI and AI uh, and and humans who weren't fully human anymore. They have incorporated AI into the into their beings, and so they're kind of like you know hybrid humans. And then uh, there would be everybody else, like a very small minority, who have decided to live without AI, and they'd be placed on reserves. Right. Right. Uh, we just the more we, you know, <laughs> the more we go around, the more we come around again. Yeah. It's like every, nothing is new. We just change the players. I know. I know. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> we'll get into that later on, on, another, yes. on another call <laughs> in part two of the podcast. Um, I want to uh, celebrate um, the Yvette Nolan Montreal tour, 20, <laughs> 23, 24 tour, um, and invite everybody who's listening to, to keep track and to, um, follow the, the projects that you're working on, because I think all of them have, have really strong stories behind them. And, uh, with you running the show, I think there would be, there could be something special. Thanks so much, Jimmy. I'm looking forward to it. This is the come test out Montreal as a possible future year for me. Oh man, I will bring you on. I will, I will be your tour guide. I'm sure you've seen a lot of places, but I know some nooks and crannies that will that might just uh, put you over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so good. Cool. All right. Thanks, Yvette. Thanks, Jimmy. Talk soon. Thank you for joining us for Inside Imago. And thank you to Yvette Nolan for spending this time with us. I've been your host, Jimmy Blair. The music that we've been listening to is Beginning, written and performed by Quinn Dooley, a Montreal actress and musician. Visit imagotheater.ca for more information about The Flood and tabladote.ca to learn more about Mitsu Shobai and coming soon, jordi.ca for more information on The Power of Jordan. This episode was produced and edited by Dana Rea Talk with you soon.